Good day to you. Hope you're having a wonderful day. We want to continue looking at our foundation. Now, this is going to be part two. Last time we looked at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now we're going to continue on past that. Keep those Beatitudes, though, in mind as we study the next parts of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember, we are supposed to be growing into those just like the fruits of the Spirit. We're supposed to be growing into those Beatitudes. So let's read the very next verse, the next part of Jesus' teaching, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The Greek words used here in these statements, they focus on the flavorless salt, okay, being flavorless, but also being useless and having no strength to serve its purpose. Also, the word that means useless also means foolish. So there's a little combination, a little layer of meanings here. So for us who should be God's salt, if we are not following God and being his salt in this society, in this world, then we are useless and foolish and we have no strength to serve our purpose. So what is our purpose? What does salt do? Well, there's two things we can think of right off the top, and those are the two I'm going to focus on. The first one is it adds flavor to what we cook, right? Without salt, a lot of food would just not taste very good. And so, without God's salt in society and in the world in general, the world's not going to be very good. We see that, right? I mean, it's obvious. The second thing that salt is, salt is a preservative. It keeps food from spoiling. So, that makes sense too, right? So that we keep the world from spoiling. So, how are we supposed to be salt? What's the seasoning we are supposed to have? Well, the seasoning we're supposed to have is the Beatitudes. Plainly, plainly, that is what we are supposed to have. That's what makes us different from those who do not know God, those out in the world. This makes us the salt of the world or our society. Now, being humble and meek, showing mercy, pursuing righteousness, being peaceful and bringing peace to others, all these are a part of God's goodness, that goodness of God that should be in us and that we can share with the world. By being this spiritual salt, we can have a positive influence on others, helping preserve and improve the society we live in. If you imagine all the things we do day to day, all these little things, all these good little things that we do, um, and, and it affects the way, you know, having God's goodness and morality in us will also affect the way we vote. It will affect the way we obey the laws. And it will just affect so many things in our, in our lives, you know, whether we will be um, uh, giving and merciful and helpful to others, that sort of thing. So just by living our daily Christian lives, we can have an impact on others and the world around us by being God's salt in the world, in society. Now, in a similar vein, let's look at the next few verses. 
If we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Here Jesus is referring to us as light. We are shining in the world and should not cover or dim our light. It should just naturally be there, right? It should just be the way it is. We just naturally have this light. What is our light? Where does it come from? And again, it comes from being humble and meek, showing mercy, pursuing righteousness, bringing peace to others. It comes from the Beatitudes. The light is from God. It's God in us, and that should be shining out always. Just a natural, normal thing in our lives, like that city on the hill. Imagine you're driving down a dark road, and you see the city sitting on the hill, simply shining out in the darkness. Just That's just natural and normal for that city. It's telling you of a possible safe haven for the night or rest for a weary traveler. You know, and it should just be, that's the way we should be, just a light. We're just there. We're not, we're not forcing it. We're not doing anything. We're just there, following God, and that's just our natural state. And like a light, you know, and they talk about a lampstand, but in my house, for instance, I have a lot of overhead lights, you know. Again, it should just be natural, like that light in our house that illuminates the room for everybody. It just lights up the room. That's just what it does. That should be how we are. It should be our godly presence around others. You know, they should see us in our our life, our everyday life, just doing good works. And that's just being a natural part of who we are and not being anything that we're we're forcing or struggling or doing as a show, which, you know, Jesus is going to talk about further on in this sermon, but it should just be a natural part of who we, who we are. Um, our purpose is to represent God in our lives, doing good works, living honest, humble lives for God by our actions and our attitudes, how we deal with things in this life. People may be curious why we live like we do. They People may ask us, well, why are you happy when they know you're going through a hard time? They know things are bad. Or how do we manage to smile when they know you're hurting? They know something bad has happened and you're, you're hurting, but you still, you still smile. You're still happy. You still have the joy of the Lord. And we answer that. We answer that question with our Lord is greater than our problems. We trust and believe in Jesus, and that's how we navigate this world, not by sight, but by faith. We navigate this world knowing and believing in God and that He's with us, and that is being God's light. So the idea of being salt and light are both similar, and they have us representing the Lord in our lives, just a normal, natural thing that we should do. Now, Jesus, at this point, talks about the law because what he is teaching is different than what these people, remember these people gathered are just normal, for the most part, they're just normal, everyday people. This is not how they're used to being taught. 
So let's jump to the end of the sermon again, like I like to do. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus was really teaching them. He was not just reading from the scriptures and letting them figure it out. This is not the way they were normally taught. Jesus was telling them how to live, how to act toward God and each other. Now, again, keep in mind the Beatitudes were about how we are with God, our attitude towards God, and our attitude towards people. Okay, so he's telling them all this. Now, coming back to where we were in his sermon, Jesus wants to caution the crowd that this is all under God's law. He's not a heretic. He is teaching from the law. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus stresses that the law and the prophets are are not being destroyed. They're being fulfilled. He is fulfilling it. And the law will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Now, the law mainly is the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the, the, the law of Moses. Um, when we say the prophets, we mainly mean the inspired scripture of the prophets in the, in the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Ezekiel. There's a number of others. Um, and overall, what we call the Old Testament, we regard as the Hebrew Bible, having the books of the law. It has some of the historical books, Proverbs and Psalms, and it has the prophets. And if I'm leaving something else, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm trying to just give you a general idea. And sometimes we will say, and I hear people say, well, we don't follow the Old Testament. But we need to realize that when we follow Jesus and his teachings, we are following the heart of the old law. We don't follow the letter of the law, you know, those, those, those laws from the, the five uh, books of Moses' law. The old covenant, that old covenant has been finished and fulfilled by Jesus and his death on the cross. But the new covenant that we have, it is very much based on that old covenant. Just like the old patriarchal law, and then there was the, the covenant there with Moses, what we call the Old Testament, the, the, the law of Moses, and now there is Jesus in the New Testament and the laws of the law of love, really, that he's given us. That's the layers. Then we're all stacked on one another. We're not throwing stuff away, but each is built on the one below it, the one that came before. So we don't do the old rituals. We don't do the sacrifices. We don't follow the food laws and those types of superficial things. However, we still do follow the heart of the law. And I have been reading through the Old Testament on my channel, and you can see some of that 
And uh, you can see how those laws are and how I make comparisons. Some of those laws are not what we tend to think in our mind. When you read them and understand, they are, they are really much more like what Jesus is teaching than some people like to probably admit. Now, there are some harsh letter of the law things, too, okay? So, we, we know that. Anyway, we still very much follow the ideals set out by the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments are still very good ideals, right? And Jesus warns the audience here, the normal people, not to break the commandments or teach anyone to do that. Now, the word Jesus uses for breaking the commandments is a Greek word that means to annul or destroy or discard. So this means they're not just breaking a commandment like, oh, I accidentally broke a commandment or I lied one time. But they are purposefully choosing to not obey the commandment. They are removing it from their life. They are just pushing it away. And then, too, even worse, they are teaching others to do the same. Because it's one thing when we decide to do something to not obey the Lord, but it makes it worse when we teach others to also not obey the Lord. Right? Jesus says, they shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And there is some implication that they may actually not be in heaven at all. There is some implication of that, even in this statement, though he doesn't come right out and say that. Then on the other side, the other person who keeps the law and teaches the law, they will be called great in heaven, and they will be wanted in heaven. The idea they are wanted and desired to be in heaven. So they will be there. Then Jesus makes a direct comparison. And this might be surprising. I imagine it was surprising to the people present. And if we realize and understand, it is surprising for us as well. Jesus tells them that they must be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is a warning, and we do not want to be found lacking in this. We don't want to be counted as least, which Jesus is Um, basically saying that the scribes and the Pharisees are among that number that will be counted as least because they are breaking the commandments and teaching others to do the same. Now, who are the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is referring to? To understand this, um, we need to know who they are. And so we've got to talk a little bit about the religious political uh, structure here in Judea at the time when Jesus was there, okay? First, we need to understand that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that had final authority on decisions that affected the religious and political lives of all Jews, they are they are that ruling council or group. They are referred to in the Bible as the chief priests, scribes, elders, and the council, sometimes just the council and sometimes it's elders of the people. But that is still referencing the Sanhedrin. They are that ruling body of the Jewish people, and they were led by the high priest. Members of the Sanhedrin were required to possess scholarship, modesty, strength. Now, not physical strength. This is strength of character. Courage. This is moral courage. Again, kind of goes together. 
and popularity among their fellow men. I'm not sure how popular all of them were, but I imagine they were at least popular in their circles. Their rulings were binding on all Jews scattered throughout the world. Only chief priests, elders, and scribes were eligible to sit on the council. By chief priest, they mean a high priest, a priest who, you know, it's not going to be the new newbie guy that doesn't really know much. It's going to be someone who's been around and been there and has moved up in their, their rankings. So only chief priests, elders, and scribes were eligible to sit on the council. There were Pharisees and Sadducees on this council. Okay, The Pharisees and the Sadducees were kind of two separate religious factions within the overall religion. Um, they just had some different beliefs and interpretations. So we're going to go into that. But first, I want you to know who the scribes were. Even, even um, it doesn't matter which sect they may have been in or whatever, the scribes were the teachers who were experts in the law. They were supposed to be the ones who knew how to answer the difficult questions from God's law. These people were considered honored professionals and the modern day equivalent would be like a lawyer. You know, a lawyer knows the law and they would know the law, God's law. So they were generally the most educated in the nation. And as such, they, they had a certain amount of influence. And the scribes were often considered wise men and were highly regarded as teachers. So remember that. Now. There was a certain problem with some of them. They added to the law, at times they added to the law, decisions of various kinds that they thought would clarify the meaning of the law or the scope of the law. Unfortunately, these tended to be harmful or bad examples. So those, those decisions you will not see in our Bible. Okay, But nonetheless, that was things that they did that at the end of their time. And, and you'll notice in our law, we have certain things they call precedents and things like that, which I believe is based on this idea of like, well, we'll clarify that. And it's not always good. <laughs> precedence is not always good. It, it can be, but it can be bad. So just, just mentioning that here as a, something that you'd probably easily understand. So next, if we look at the Pharisees, now the Pharisees, they were popular with the people who considered them to be the highest religious authority, religious authority. They were especially influential in the local synagogues where that's where they were. That's my understanding. The Pharisees believed that in addition to the written Torah, that there was also this oral tradition, which they might call the oral Torah, or traditions of the elders, which you'll see mentioned in certain Gospels, like in Matthew chapter 15. Um, so they believed that this oral tradition or traditions of the elders were parts of the law that God gave Moses, but were never written down. And so they insist that the written Torah is not complete, and that you have to have the traditions of the elders or the oral Torah to complete the Torah. As you might imagine, this, this could lead to some problems and this could cause some religious conflict with the Sadducees, but we'll get to that. Some examples of their traditions, though, that, that were, you know, gone astray and pretty obvious, and these are 
plainly shown in the Gospels, the Pharisees held to a belief that if they made contributions dedicated to the temple, and they would call it Corban or a gift to God, they would say that took precedence over helping their father and mother. Now, what they did here, the the uh, corrupt part of this was that they would say, well, I'm dedicating my wealth and my house to God. When I die, it all goes to God. So for that reason, I'm sorry, I've promised all that to God when I die, so I can't, I can't use any of it to help you, mom and dad and whoever else might need help or might need something. No, I can't help you. I've, I've dedicated everything to God after I die. So it's kind of a corrupt way of keeping everything to yourself, being very selfish. And then when you die, you don't care, right? I'm not trying to be mean. I mean, this is just, that's the corrupt way of thinking. And that's the way they did that. And so they would, and Jesus mentions this. I think if you look over at Mark chapter seven, verse 11, um, a matter of fact, maybe more verses than that, but you'll see this is being talked about and Jesus fusses at them over that. Um, they even considered they would go so extreme sometimes they would consider like if you were to pick an apple and eat it on the Sabbath, that would be work. You picked an apple. You harvested that apple. That is work. And that's a little extreme and that's not really the way the Lord or God intended the Sabbath to be. He intended that to be a good day of 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 ease and rest and uh, to focus on him. Anyway, so sometimes they had some extreme traditions, okay? All right, so let's look at, finally, we'll look at the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they carried out the priestly functions at the temple in Jerusalem, and they maintained the temple. These are the priests that we normally think of as being the priests. They maintained the temple their, their priestly responsibilities included the daily offering of sacrifices at the temple, and they presided over the sacrifices during the great pilgrimage feasts like the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, held in Jerusalem. They believed the only source of divine authority was the written Torah, the law of God from Moses or the first five books of the Bible, and they rejected the traditions the oral traditions held by the Pharisees. Now, their responsibilities, they had quite a few responsibilities, especially because here Rome had stepped in and Rome was over Judea and was telling them basically what to do, okay? So, they had to collect taxes. They had to equip and lead the army and regulate uh, relations with the Roman Empire. They were kind of the in-between guys. This made them a lot less popular with the people because they were kind of seen as working with the Romans. But the Romans were occupiers. It's not like they had a lot of choice. Now, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did believe in a very stringent lifestyle and a very strict literal literal interpretation of God's law, the way it's written. While the Pharisees were a little bit loosey-goosey, they had their oral traditions and stuff, right? So one thing that might help clarify the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, this is a bit of an extreme example, but it is a good example. The Bible says, if you look in Exodus chapter 21, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, right? Now, the Pharisees would say, well, you know what? If you chopped his hand off, you could pay him for that hand. 
you could give him money to make up for that, or you could pay him for his eye or pay him for his tooth. You know, money can be paid to make up for that. Now, the Sadducees would say that those who cause the loss of an eye or tooth or hand should be punished by literally losing an eye, a tooth, or hand. And that is the way that that particular verse reads, though there are times where God lists monetary compensations for things too. So you really have to study that out um, as one of their scribes or lawyers and really see what they should be doing. For our purposes, we follow that more uh, Pharisee style of thing. You notice in our law, if you do something to someone and cause injury. Now, now most times we're talking about uh, not truly purposeful injury, maybe negligent, but not purposeful. Then, then we allow for monetary compensation, right? So that's, that's pretty standard for us. But the Sadducees would say literally, no, you know, you should, you should pay whatever you took. You should pay the same, you know, so that's it. That's the way they were. So these are the religious and political groups in charge in Jesus' time in Israel. They all had the same problem. They were under Roman occupation. So Rome allowed them you know, to continue their role as long as they were helping Rome in keeping the peace, people peaceful and orderly. That was fine. They would allow them to keep their religious leaders. But their power was greatly reduced. And mainly, they only had power over religious issues, and they couldn't normally, now they it did happen, but normally they were not supposed to perform any executions or things of that nature themselves, okay? So back to our verse that got us started looking at these religious leaders, okay? I know we've been away for a minute, but... Going back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is referring to the wise men of their day, highly regarded for their knowledge of the law, and the Pharisees, the popular group of religious leaders who were considered to be the highest authority. And he's telling the people, just the normal people, that they must be more righteous than these leaders that they follow and that they regard as being wise. And the lesson here is that we can't follow men. Even men we, we regard as wise or scholarly and educated. And we can't follow popular leaders just because they may be charismatic or in touch with popular opinion. You know, they may be right on the topics, but we can't follow them. We must exceed their righteousness and do what is right in the sight of God. And to do that, we must follow God, right? We must have, again, these beatitudes. We can't follow the men of these council, of this council, because they break God's law, and they teach others to break it. So here, you know, Jesus is telling us that we cannot follow men. We have to follow God. We must have these beatitudes, and we must let our light shine, and we must have salt and be salt. We must have these good things and be these good, godly people. 
So now Jesus begins to teach us this form of righteousness, righteousness that is greater than the religious leaders that they that the people have been taught by at this point. And, and we could relate this to today. If you want to relate it to today, it, it's very easy. Uh, a lot of very popular preachers and teachers, they, you know, on TV and different, different places that you see, um, a lot of them are not teaching the true gospel. They're teaching things that are incorrect. It's a lot of false teaching. We can't trust in our uh, political leaders because they too are not really following God uh, from most of the time, from what we see. I don't want to judge and condemn everybody, but for the most part, we can't trust those in power in our government. So we can't follow these men. You know, and even the guys, let's say there's a preacher that you listen to and you, he seems pretty good and you you believe what he says and and he seems to be teaching from the Bible, you need to make sure that you're following along and that you um, can see that he is actually teaching the Bible and that there's not a problem being taught. That goes for me or anyone else. It doesn't matter. You need to make sure that they are following the Bible. That's just that's just the way it is. And we're each responsible for that. I have certain folks that I listen to that I like to listen to, and I evaluate what they say through the Bible, the filter of the Bible. That's that's what we're supposed to do. So here Jesus is going to teach this form of righteousness again. Notice as we go through these verses that Jesus is teaching about our hearts. He's after our hearts to get us to change our hearts toward God. You notice the first of the Beatitudes about God, but also toward each other. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Now, without a cause is a phrase that is in my translation. I tend to use the New King James Bible. But when I looked at both interlinears that I look at in the Greek, that phrase is not there. Now, it may be implied through some wording or something that I don't understand. I'm not a Greek scholar. But I think a lot of translations leave that out. And I think that's okay, because I think the idea that we're angry with our brother, I think that's a fair assessment that when we're angry with our brother, you know, he, said, he says, um, whoever is angry with his brother, sorry, I hit the mic there. Hold on. Okay. Whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rakah. So I think the idea there that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment is true because anger tempts us to do things that are wrong, say things that are wrong. Mm, you know, brr, you know, makes you kind of grumpy. Okay. All right, so let's continue. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, now Raka, I looked this up. I wanted to understand this as best I can. It is an abusive term. It is a, it is meant to be something that you say mean to somebody. It's not like there's not a nice version of it. It's like an abusive term, meaning useless, that you would call somebody that. They are useless, and you mean it in a mean way, in a demeaning way. So. And whoever says to his brother, Rakah, shall be in danger of the council. 
Sanhedrin, right? The council, that's Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you fool, now the word here for fool, this is different. This is a word that means godless and used in this context as an expression of condemnation, like you are judging the person, you're judging them and condemning them to hell. So the word here is that. It is, it is another strong word. It's not really translated over into uh, uh, English. It doesn't quite come out the same, but it is a very judgmental word. The word here, again, means it's an expression of saying someone is godless and you're condemning them. You're judging that person to be going to hell, really. But notice what it says. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So you're endangering yourself with the same judgment and condemnation you're giving the other person. Now, Jesus will speak more about that later on in this sermon. But I I wanted us to understand this is something that's always bugged me. I like to understand these words and understand what, what he's saying here. So that's what he's saying. It's one thing to be mean to somebody and be in danger of the council, and it's another to be condemning and judgmental. So we're going to move on. We'll, we'll cover this some more. Uh, verse 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge The judge hands you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Here Jesus is telling us that anger is the beginning of murder. He's not saying you've committed murder because you're angry. We're human. We have emotions. Sometimes we'll be angry. Sometimes someone may have insulted us or offended us. And sometimes our anger may be justified. It may be. But we need to be careful how we deal with our anger because anger can become resentment and hate and lead to violence. And, and we don't want that. We don't want that at all. Now, verses, um, verse 21 reminds us of the commandment, you shall not murder. And then verse 22 deals with the anger behind the sin, how it starts in our hearts. And we need to be aware of that. Just being angry at another person. Now, it says, brother. Now, in the old days, the way they spoke, if they said man or brother, it could easily mean mankind, everyone. And brother could just mean anyone and everyone, your neighbor, a person. It didn't really just mean just males. It meant anyone. And so man and brother were generic terms to mean anyone, any person, any neighbor. Okay, so just being angry at another person puts our hearts in danger due to that anger and that temptation to take it farther. You know, if you go into uh, resentment and, and hate. Now, if we slander that person, example being abusive and insulting, like, like Jesus said there, then we could be in danger of the Sanhedrin or man's law, man's courts. We could be in danger of that. And then if we go further and condemn the person, judging them as if we were the Lord, then we are in danger of receiving the same condemnation from God. And Jesus will state that even more clearly later in the sermon, like I said. This is a warning to us when we get angry to be careful how we treat the person 
that has offended us. Now, in verses 23 to 26, Jesus tells us how to deal with this type of situation. Now, it's couched in the idea that this is the second party. This is the one who has offended his brother and is not necessarily the one who is angry, but this is the one who caused the offense, say. Okay? But it's still good advice for both. First, don't just assume you're in the right. Don't just assume that you're in the right because maybe you're the offended party. Even if you think you are in the right, don't just assume that. Don't come to God like you're innocent and everything's hunky-dory and, and you know, like you're in good stead. When you have this strife and this conflict with someone else, resolve the issue. Do what you can to make peace. Then come and bring that to God. Remember, we should be peacemakers and we should be humble and merciful. So if you're the one that was offended, you, you need to have some mercy. You've probably offended people at some point too. So you need to be merciful and you need to be humble and, and realize that, hey, maybe I did offend them if, if you're the offending party. So even if we are in the right morally, it is to our benefit, it's always to our benefit to make peace, to resolve our differences and not be accusing or condemning each other. We are warned that to continue without making peace can cause ourselves to be condemned. It puts us in a bad spot. Now, while Jesus uses the core and the prison as an example, realize that he's also referring to spiritual punishment and spiritual things. If we end up condemned by God due to our grudges and our anger and hate, you know, that's a bad thing. And, and anger tends to grow into hate if we don't stop it. That's just, a, that's just a progression that you go through, and you don't want to go through that, so you want to stop that. We don't want to end up condemned by God. Remember, we're forgiving, we're forgiven as we forgive. So we must forgive, right? We must be merciful. And here Jesus is telling us how to end it. Come to an agreement, make peace with anyone that you offend or are offended by. You know, try to make peace with them. So I want to stop here. In this uh, part of our look at our foundation, this, uh, this look of the, at the Sermon on the Mount, I want to stop here because the next verses, um, Jesus is going to talk about adultery and marriage and oaths and things that I think should be grouped together, and I don't want to break them apart. I think this is a good stopping po point for right here. So I want to thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. May God bless you and keep you safe. And remember, God loves you.